Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops-Tay-Swetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmikulu. And today's text, I Am Not a Serial Killer, takes place in North Dakota, the traditional territories of the Métis, Yanktonia, Assiniboine, and Ocheti-Sakoin peoples. And there's some pretty strong Fargo vibes in the movie, Joe, I gotta say. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. It's interesting because obviously the book is set in North Dakota. The film was shot in Minnesota. Mm. And I will say that this is one of those cases where the small town really becomes a character, especially in the film. Like, I really got a sense of place from this. I loved those Main Street shots in the film. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I loved how the director really established that like the main street and the town, even before any of the characters. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really good choice because this this book is so dependent on its geography, right? Like if the town wasn't small enough for a kid to cycle around, basically, mm -hmm. then none of the plotting would make any sense. Well, yeah, and I think there's something about not just the way that characters can get around, but also the kind of oppressive, very limited options. Like, there's so much sadness and just kind of, I don't want to say basic, because it sounds really negative, like in terms of connotations, but it gives you a sense of why life would be a certain way and why somebody might be looking for a way out or that life would be very simple. Mm. Is that disparaging? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's an interesting economic dynamic in the town, mm -hmm. right? Um, and folks don't have a lot, but they also don't need a lot. And I think mm -hmm. that the older I get, <laughs> the more appealing <laughs> that is. <laughs> Definitely. Right? Yeah. yeah, and I think it really suits the narrative in the way that this is a small town community where people know each other, people acknowledge each other by name because they see each other on the main street, in church, and yes, at the funeral parlor on the mm -hmm. regular. Yeah. Should we do a plot summary? Yes, indeed, because I don't know how popular this particular title is. It's interesting, Joe, because I had obviously never heard of it. Everybody's very surprised that I didn't right. know about this. <laughs> yes. Welcome to October. We're talking about horror. <laughs> Brenna knows nothing about any of this. But I noticed that when you posted a picture on um, your Instagram that you were reading this book, uh, a bunch of people were like, oh my gosh, I love that series. And I was yes. like... I've read this whole book and I didn't know it was a series. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. okay. And many books. It's not as though this is, you know, a title and it's got a sequel. It's like there's six of them, I think. Yeah. So the book is called I'm Not a Serial Killer. It's by um, Dan Wells. And I believe this is his first novel. It is. Yes. There are moments when it feels like it um, in terms of the plotting. But I actually, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the book and the perspective. So... Our protagonist is 15. His name is John Wayne Cleaver because his parents are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> I do like it because as somebody who listens to a certain amount of true crime, the idea that a potential serial killer has three names comes up a lot. 
Yeah, I know. As somebody who goes by her three names, I do hear that fairly often. <laughs> no, you have like two last names. Like it's when people have two first names and then a last name, then it's like, oh, no. <laughs> um, And John Wayne Cleaver, who I'm just going to call John from now on. Yes. Yeah. He's a troubled kid. His dad is out of the picture. He lives with his mom, but they are not close. No. And his mom co-owns a funeral parlor with her sister, Margaret. Mm -hmm. And something that I thought I wanted more development on is apparently his mother also met his father because they were both morticians. Yes. And they met yeah. in a small town. But they never talk about that more. Maybe it comes up in the other books. I wanted I more information say, about that. There's a lot in here where I just think, oh, we're going to get into this in sequels. Like the relationship between the two sisters, between John and his older sister, who has yeah. an even more fraught relationship with their mother. And then, yeah, I think it's only a matter of time before that dad comes back. He's gotta, right? He's gotta. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So this is the dynamic, though, that John lives in. It's not, like, happy. He doesn't have anybody he can really, like, connect with or confide in, with the exception <laughs> <Well>, of... <laughs> he can't connect or confide in anybody because he's also a sociopath. Well, I'm getting there. <laughs> so he has a therapist named Dr. Neblin. And um, Dr. Neblin is, like, the only person who really kind of knows anything yes. about him. And Dr. Neblin has very recently diagnosed john as being a sociopath but mm -hmm. dr neblin really believes that john doesn't have to be a violent criminal just because mm -hmm. he is a sociopath dr neblin yeah. really believes in the potential for john to be a good person and i actually yeah. really loved his character yes because he's the father figure that john doesn't have mm -hmm. he's particularly well cast in the film i think and he provides us an opportunity to see John as a more rounded person. Because ironically somewhat, even though we follow John, the book is focalized through him. It's definitely mm -hmm. a first person narrator. Oh, yeah. He keeps us at such a distance that often it's only through his conversations with Dr. Neblin that we kind of get to contextualize how he's feeling. Or at least that's how I felt. I agree with that. Yeah, because so much of what he's narrating to us is with things that he doesn't want to do. Whereas mm -hmm. when he gets into his therapy sessions, that's where he actually talks about like, this is what I want to do. And I'm holding myself back. And we actually get another person's perspective, gently prodding and encouraging him to be like, okay, what do you have control over? Yes. And one of the things, this element of control actually comes up a lot because John lives by these rules that he mm -hmm. holds himself to so that he doesn't obsess over people, so that he doesn't stalk people, so that he isn't violent. Mm -hmm. So one of his rules is he has to hang out with this boy named Max who doesn't have any other friends <laughs> because he oh, thinks Max. if he has one friend, he'll be normal. Um, and so that's one check, which poor Max finds out. That's the only reason that they're friends later mm -hmm. in the book and it's pretty heartbreaking. He also... Whenever somebody insults him or he feels violent towards someone, he gives them a compliment, which makes for some very good comic moments throughout the book. Yes, and I really appreciated that because there's the potential to make this so dark and grim that those moments of comedy really add a levity that makes it bearable. Totally, because there's also a pretty big body count. And as I said to Joe, <laughs> yes. this, this book is definitely on the gorier side of what mm -hmm. I would um ever... Uh, ever read? touch ever look at yeah <laughs> in particular when he's in the funeral home right at the beginning of the book there is this Ooh. just 
incredibly graphic yes. and detailed description of how a person gets embalmed. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, even as someone who does Whoa. like horror, I was like, no, I don't <laughs> like this. Like, give me a monster scooping out people's guts and setting them aside, but don't tell me about arteries and veins. No, <laughs> it was simultaneously fascinating and super upsetting. And um, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, this week on Stuff You Should Know, which is a podcast I listen to every week, there was an episode on how embalming works. Hey, and- the synergy. It was amazing synergy. And also, it's very accurate. The book is very accurate. That's all I'll say. Yes. <laughs> um, um, but basically, the body count does start to climb. So there's um, a serial killer in Clayton County. And this is important because John is obsessed with serial killers. He mm-hmm. writes all his essays for school about serial killers. He thinks oh, about dear. serial killers all the time. Yeah. And now there's a serial killer. John also has three critical characteristics of serial killers he Mm -hmm. wets the bed he's a pyromaniac and he has abused animals i'm so grateful joe that we don't see any of the animal abuse in the book Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we just get told about it thank you dan wells i couldn't have handled that (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's important to note that that's actually another characteristic that often ends up coming up in horror films where you're trying to increase the stakes you're trying to make it scary and you're reticent to kill off actual human beings. So oftentimes it's like, oh, well, somebody's got a dog. Well, that dog is going to die. So I was really thankful that we don't get that in either version of this text. Like Mm -hmm. you can tell us, you can mention it to us, but we don't actually need to see that. And I appreciated the restraint in both. And all the bodies are human. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So people sort of start to die. There's a bunch of sort of strangers who die, but also um, two police officers in the town and Max's father are killed by this serial killer. And what's unique about the way this serial killer operates is that he always takes a part from each person. So mm-hmm. he steals a kidney, he takes an arm, he takes the lungs from another guy. So like these body parts are missing, which of course in the mortuary they discover because they need to account for all the body parts. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's a trophy thing, like this yeah. person is taking a collectible. And then the film goes supernatural, which is not something that I expected, uh, having very little knowledge of what the story was. I thought it was actually going to be this kid discovers a serial killer working in his hometown and then ends up forming a relationship with them. I didn't realize it was going to be adversarial, and I didn't realize it would be supernatural. Yeah, because what happens is it's actually his neighbor, an older man who John has always done little chores and like helped to look after, um, Mr. Crowley, and he's been taking these body parts because he's a demon. Mm-hmm. And he actually has the power to completely shapeshift. He can kill someone yeah. and take over their entire body. And that's what mm-hmm. he did for a long time until he met his wife, Kay. Aww. And because he doesn't want to leave her behind, now he just replaces the bits of himself that wear out with other body parts. And yeah. what I love about this dynamic is John, when he thinks he's just like a normal serial killer, he's like, cool, I get this. I understand this guy and where he's coming from. And exactly. then when he finds out that it's because he has a close, intimate relationship that he doesn't want to leave behind, John's like, well, this is where it's very strange. Yeah, I don't understand this. And now I probably have to kill you. And so there's this paradox at the core of the text, right? Crowley is a demon who loves deeply 
Mm-hmm. And John is a human who loves no one. Ah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because there's hints that he actually has a regular human crush on his oh, that's true. not quite neighbor, but a uh, school girl, Brooke. Although, oh my goodness, as the book slowly unveils that yeah. uh, when John hasn't been narrating to us, he's been stalking Brooke. Mm-hmm. That spooked me because it was yeah. so well done. The reveal of mm-hmm. that was so well done. Yeah, you're like, oh, he just has like a little interest in her. And then you realize, oh, no, he's standing outside of her window. He's going through her trash. He's imagining it being there and studying with her. But actually, he's just spying on her from across the street. You're like, oh, no. Oh, John. Oh, John. So upsetting. (laughs) All this to say, John decides that he needs to destroy Crowley. And the weakness that he uncovers is that Crowley has been trying to push longer and longer to not kill crowley yeah, doesn't want to kill doesn't enjoy killing people he's actually just doing it because he wants to stay with Kay. and yeah. so john waits until he's out on a hunt one night and sneaks into the house and kidnaps well ties up Kay and sends these graphic mm. pictures to crowley of Kay so that he will give up the hunt and turn back but what's actually happened is he was halfway through his hunt the person he catches is Dr. Neblin. He catches yeah. Dr. Neblin because John called him to try to stop himself from killing Kay instead of mm-hmm. just disorienting her. And so Dr. Neblin went running out of his house to try to protect John. And yeah. that gets him killed. But the body hasn't been used yet. And John is able to basically intercede and hide the body. And there's this whole chase that goes Through the awry. mortuary. Through the his mortuary. Mom sees... His mom finds out that, like, because I think his mom has secretly been thinking he's the serial killer this whole time. Oh, 100%. There's even a moment where we're, I think, meant to believe, is this actually just John doing these killings? I definitely thought, especially in the scene where he describes the police being killed, I Mm -hmm. for sure thought that he was dissociating and we were going to find out it was John all along. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this book could have gone in about three or four different directions. And it sets them all up so well. None of them feel like, you know, when you get a red herring, sometimes it feels like you've been really, really manipulated. And sometimes it just, sometimes it's just so well done that you're just like, oh, well, hats off to you. This is definitely the latter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a surprisingly adept and almost even clever plotting. Like there's a couple of different points where it zigged when I thought it was going to zag. And I just thought, huh. Okay, yeah, you got me. Yeah. So ultimately, what we discover is that in these last moments of the book, John really does care about his mom. He tries Mm -hmm. to protect her, obviously, from um, the demon. The demon gets destroyed in the embalming room. And Mm -hmm. his mom is like, okay, we're going to call the cops. We're going to tell them exactly what happened. And, you know, (laughs) like they don't try to tell them the supernatural part, but it's actually kind of brilliant because they... They make it so that he's not a suspicious character. He doesn't go on the run. And Kay also backs up everything that John says, because as far as she's concerned, uh, Crowley is just kind of gone. And she relies on John to help look after her. And it's kind of a weirdly happy ending. Kind of. Yeah. Everything gets wrapped up except for the relationship that John now has with his mom, who it's good that they've moved it to the point where she will no longer suspect him. And she's almost more involved now, like they have a secret. And she even makes uh, a reference earlier in the book when things go disastrously bad with his older sister. You know, she says, we're the only family that we have. Mm -hmm. So I like this 
confirmation that even though she has discovered her son is definitely a sociopath and in extreme danger of committing harm to other people they have this thing that will unify them i mean Mm -hmm. this is where a lot of horror stories actually begin where the parents know something is deeply wrong and they don't intercede and then that person goes on to harm lots of folks so again interested to see where those sequels go yeah i i'm i'm weirdly curious so i liked it (laughs) joe i'm glad we did this one I was nervous about the gore factor, but mm-hmm. other than that, I thought it was really well done. There were only a few parts in the book, and the description of the embalming was one of them where I was like, oh, I don't want to read anymore. <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, it's a lot of like kind of looking away from the gore, yeah. which I appreciated. Yeah, and it feels like it's mostly in service, particularly when you know what Crawley is doing with the bodies, like why there needs to be rips and gashes and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And it's always done in such a way that it's like, and then a violent act was committed. It's not like, let me tell you about the size and shape of this wound with like extremely gory details. Yeah, I guess you're right. Strangely, it's not um, gratuitous because it, Mm -hmm. it makes sense within the context of the plot. Yeah. And I think some of the things that we've touched on were the elements that really helped this book to stand apart from a more traditional serial killer narrative. It's not just a boy who ends up getting caught up in something that's bigger than him. It's somebody who is actively inadvertently contributing to the narrative of the killings. Like, yeah, he is definitely a reason why some of these people get murdered. He's responsible for a bunch of people dying. And I thought that was fascinating. I thought the ending where you're right, everything kind of gets wrapped up, but in a way that makes sense, but also doesn't excuse anything that happens. Even the decision to kill Neblin was surprising to me because Mm -hmm. I thought you're getting rid of the only person who really knows and trusts John. And it makes sense because that's what the mother will be moving Mm -hmm. forward. But she's so less equipped to handle who John really is. Well, totally. And also it's so, it's weirdly gratifying that Neblin dies effectively sacrificing himself for John. Like Mm -hmm. he was going out of his way to protect John. That's Uh, um, strangely satisfying in the context of the book too. It is. Yeah. Like Neblin is such a good character. Like usually I don't like the characters who are just pious and right (laughs) and there's something just very charming about the relationship that the two of them have. And I do think it complements the voiceover narration that we're getting. So, like, we're getting a more complete picture of who John is as a result of these therapy sessions. Well, there's something about Neblin's ability to see John clearly but not excuse him, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, he's not going to be like, it's okay that you want to kill people. He's like, look at all the progress you make setting up these rules for yourself that help you control your behavior. Mm-hmm. So he is pious, but he's contextually biased like it makes sense (laughs) the way he approaches john and it's just so important that we have that release valve in john's character because i actually think the narrative would suffer without that Mm -hmm. because he is not entirely reliable narrator right which we we discover in a few key moments in the text Mm -hmm. yeah i'd be remiss if i didn't acknowledge that this is probably going to seem reminiscent to the dexter series for a lot of people dev said because he watched the movie with me and he was like this is this is just dexter and fargo together and i was like i've not watched either of those so i don't (laughs) mind 
Yeah, it's the same principle where it's someone who is clearly on the road to becoming a killer, and then they adopt a code, in the case of Dexter, and here a series of rules that will not only help them to pass as a regular person, but also to either direct or control their impulses. So in Dexter, his father knows what he is capable of, and he develops a code that he will only track and kill other killers, which is why this seems so reminiscent, because John justifies his actions by saying, well, I need to stop this serial killer, and then it becomes, I need to stop this demon. And that is less murderous than if you were just killing someone like Brooke or Max. Right. Yeah. Well, it's true. And it allows us as the reader or the watcher in both those contexts to have empathy. Exactly. Yeah. Even the most accomplished writer of antiheroes can't get Mm -hmm. away from the part where we actually do have to empathize with the character in some capacity, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we shift and talk about the film and we can discuss whether we think it's as effective when we get to see it play out in front of our eyes. Cool. John, adolescence can be a difficult time. It's normal to be drawn to death and murder. You can go too far down that road, too far away from normal. What do you say, John? I'm interested in how many times you felt it was necessary to say the word normal. I have rules to keep me normal and to keep everybody else safe. I think about killing a person, you just give them a compliment. You are a really great guy. You're a freak. You have a lot of predictors for serial killer behavior, but you're in control of your own destiny. John. Yeah, Mr. Crowley? Oh, it's a beautiful day, John. I'm glad you are. A killer has struck, leaving a dead body in a terrified town in his waist. The last thing is telling me it's his mass murderer. You guys worried about going out of business? It's two bodies in a week. It's money in the bank. First question of psychological profiling is what's the killer doing who doesn't absolutely have to? Well, we're missing a kidney. What if the person who killed him took it? Takes the lungs, takes the kidney. What next? I need to do normal stuff right now. I'm breaking all my rules. I can't imagine what you must be going through. I'm on the edge and I'm falling. Ted Bundy said that after you killed somebody, you know, if you had enough time with them. Shut up! Shut up! And they could be whoever you wanted them to be. You're weird, man. Okay, so the film is from 2016. It was written by Christopher Hyde as well as Billy O'Brien, and O'Brien is the director. And I thought it's interesting that this is an Irish-American co-production, so we get a bunch of international actors in the cast who are putting on Midwestern accents. Yeah, it's a bit funny. Yeah. (laughs) So we have Max Records as John, and he hasn't actually done very much but he was highlighted by dan wells when the movie adaptation of where the wild things comes out so he actually said here's a child actor who has the gravitas but also like 
the anger and the destructiveness kind of built into them. And he suggested that Max Records would be a good fit for this character. He's right. It's really good casting. Uh, it's interesting. I I found that I often wanted less emotionality from records. There's oh, a few too many scenes where I thought, you know what? You're showing your hand. You actually seem like you do have feelings and you do care. Hmm. That's interesting. I did not feel that way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, rest of the cast, we have Christopher Lloyd is our big selling feature as Bill Crowley. We've got Laura Frazier as John's mother, April. We've got Carl Geary as Dr. Neblin. Christina Baldwin as Aunt Margaret, who I find charming in both texts and I want more of. I agree. Totally mm-hmm. agree. I want her more as a foil to john's mother especially in the time before their relationship shifts i just Mm -hmm. i wanted john to like confide in her or something something right because she's the cool aunt she's the nice aunt she seems to be more understanding uh we've also got anna sudberg as john's sister lauren we've got lucy lawton as john's crush brooke raymond brandstrom as john's best friend max and finally d noah as k so overall you mentioned that you liked Max Records as John, but what did you think of the rest of the cast? Yeah, I actually, I also really liked um, the casting of Dr. Neblin. I was like, mm-hmm. "Why? wait, he's Irish, what's happening? But <laughs> once I got over <laughs> that, um, the film takes the relationship with Dr. Neblin outside of the therapy office. They, yeah. they bird watch together. Um, and at first uh-huh. I was like, this is cheesy and weird, but I actually came to really like it because... I think the film would potentially feel quite static otherwise because they have to have those conversations. It's important. Mm -hmm. And if they just had those conversations sitting in a therapy office, I'm not sure it would be much fun to watch. Okay. So I'm glad they did that, although I I balked at it at first. I thought Christopher Lloyd was fantastic. I was expecting to be distracted by him. Um, because I'm usually distracted by him. Like, I usually mm-hmm. see him and I can't think of anything but Back to the Future. Well, he's such a big... Like, he's an actor who comes with not just baggage, but he often plays these larger-than-life characters, right? Mm-hmm. So he brings that into the role. But yeah, this is a very understated, very quiet... Very like, understated. It's almost melancholy, which I think is perfect for the character when you know what he's struggling with. He plays him as an old, tired yeah. man. Yeah. And he doesn't play him as demonic until mm-hmm. those moments when he strikes. And it's so effective. When mm-hmm. I saw that it was Christopher Lloyd, I was worried it was going to be a really cartoony portrayal. Well, yeah, because he literally plays a cartoon villain in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not at all. He, I think no. this is actually one of probably my favorite performances I've ever seen from him, which is surprising wow. because it's a horror movie and mm-hmm. uh, he's a demon. None <laughs> of my favorite things. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. No, it is a very good performance. He's bringing a lot to a not as showy role. And I say not as showy both for him, but also I think even compared to the book, like I don't yeah. think Bill Crowley is as big a character in the film as he is in the book. There's this interesting thing they do, the director or the cinematographer chooses to do, which is we get a lot of shots of Bill Crawley sitting on his porch, Mm -hmm. wrapped in a big oversized cardigan. Yeah. And the house is huge. The Mm -hmm. porch is huge. The sweater is huge. He looks tiny. (laughs) He looks so tiny. And even though Christopher Lloyd is a tall, tall man. Yes. 
he looks so tiny in those scenes. And it's a really good way of showing how dependent Crowley becomes on on securing other body parts, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he can't go on this way. And it's very effective in evoking that. But it's also just, yeah, it makes him seem like this tiny little old man who you kind of actually want to protect. And then you're like, oh, wait, he's a demon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And folks, if you haven't seen the film, but you've read the book, this is arguably one of the most straightforward adaptations that we've covered. We're repurposing whole sections of dialogue in the film. There's a couple of key differences, though. And one of them is, so Crowley goes with his wife to a dance at a kind of Mm -hmm. like senior citizen center. And he can't dance with her all that well, because at this point, one of his legs is starting to fall apart. Or so we're meant to believe. It's very not gory, the film. Let me just say it's very not gory. Yeah, exactly. So he has to sit down and this barber ends up dancing with his wife Kay and that becomes one of the murder set pieces where Crowley deliberately goes after you okay you and I are on opposite playing fields here (laughs) because I hated all of the stuff with Neblin out and about I wanted that in an office because it seems so disingenuous to be doing therapy sessions while bird watching I like this because it's a little bit petty And it feels more human to me. Like, this is a demon who has decided to spend a human life with a person because they're in love. And he gets jealous. So he decides to kill someone who has better dancing techniques. And then he can take his wife dancing. It it undercuts the whole idea that Crowley doesn't like to kill. (laughs) No, I, I disagree because... He still has to do this to repair his body. So he's just being more strategic. Like, I found the film did a better job of capturing the reality of the situation. He is going to have to kill people that he knows. In the book, it seems like he's just constantly on the hunt for drifters. And I'm yeah, like, it's small town, North part. Dakota. There are no drifters <laughs> at this town. Like, you get you don't one. You know that. Maybe it's a drifter capital. Maybe it's a hot spot for drifters. Maybe that's why Crowley Gosh. located himself here. It's the drifter <laughs> capital of North America. <laughs> okay, somebody is talking out of their butts, and their name starts with... Oh, wait. It's the serial killer on this podcast, the one with three names. (laughs) I don't know. We talked about it a little bit off the top, but I think that the setting and the way that it's visually captured in the film is so important. So not only do we get a lot of establishing shots of like factories blowing out smoke in the winter, but even the lighting decisions, like this is a very gloomy sort of almost monochromatic film not a lot of bright light not a lot of sunshine it just seems sort of overcast and a little bit grim most of the time and i Mm -hmm. thought that that was super effective but not hit you on the head with it yeah i agree it's partly it's just low budget right like (laughs) oh yeah this is an independent film it's like 1.5 million dollars i think yeah Devin was like, it looks kind of Canadian. And I was like, no, it just looks cheap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, for a lot of people, that is Canadian, (laughs) Brenna. No, I know. Um, But but they really make it work for them, right? Like, it's also Mm -hmm. the time of year when the film is set, fall into winter. Yeah. Like, anywhere that gets winter is basically a miserable place Mm -hmm. throughout the month of November. And the vast majority of the action of this film takes place in the month of November. Mm -hmm. It's just really... I think, effectively 
using the small town, the bleak sort of late fall. And yeah, yeah, like it's just it's just using all those things to really good effect because it's a creepy time of year. Mm -hmm. And it really works here. Like all the panned out shots of like the leafless trees, right? Mm hmm the ice fishing scene and how bleak that is like yeah that's a bleak place to die let's just say Oof. and in fact the town itself right it's obviously not this incredibly prosperous place mm-hmm. and so yeah i i liked all of that all of the sort of set dressing i thought was really effective yeah okay so you mentioned the ice fishing setting and this Mm -hmm. is really the first time that we get a glimpse of crowley in action and i don't know what you were expecting like in the book he's described as being able to grow talons Mm -hmm. where his hands normally are like he actually does shape shift as you Mm -hmm. said and i was curious given this low budget very kind of realism uh, aesthetics that we're using in the film i didn't know how this was going to translate when we got into the more supernatural elements and this is the introduction to it we see it it's an extreme long shot as john is watching from the trees they're out on the ice it's a flash but it almost mm-hmm. looks like crowley shoots a tree limb through this guy and yeah. i loved it it, I loved it, it looked too. so good it looked so good it was super scary it was the perfect way to evoke the demonic nature of Crowley in this moment Mm -hmm. before John has figured out all of it. Like it was the perfect tease of his demonic capacity and Mm -hmm. it was the right amount of effect for the budget, right? They weren't trying to overshoot what they were capable of delivering. It was perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we had a conversation offline before we started recording because the film ends up knowing when to show its cards and how much it can and can't deliver in terms of these effects, right? Like, as Mm -hmm. we said, low budget, they kind of save everything for the last little bit. And I think problematically, they almost overshoot, like they would have been better served. O'Brien would have been better served to use his money not to deliver a big FX finale, like what we get in the film. Because the film to me goes on a touch too long this is about an hour and 45 and he takes so long to die in the film oh my god he takes so long to die so we've get we get this great scene where christopher lloyd is attacking the mom Mm -hmm. they manage to subdue him they tie him up on the mortuary table and then they swap out his fluids with embalming liquid and i thought okay that's smart that's Ah! great it's sad, it's a little bit pathetic, but it also seems like a really smart way to bring things back to, yes, this is our business, this is what we know how to fight with. Mm-hmm. And it's great. And then it keeps going, oh where God. the creature living inside Crowley Gets actually out. emerges, and yeah. there's some puppetry effect that's augmented by FX work. And you and I are in agreement here, the yeah. puppet looks okay, Mm-hmm. But then it stands up and no, it's lit it under fluorescent lighting and it doesn't look good. No, and it's unnecessary. Like, it doesn't happen in the book. It's not like they're trying to achieve something from the book. No, they're trying to do something big and flashy. And yet, it's weird. It's We always have this note where, <laughs> whether it's the filmmaker or the author, like, they don't know what's good about what they're creating sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. What's so good and scary, genuinely scary about this movie is the restraint. So yes. mm-hmm. 
one thing I liked about the film is that I, I felt like as an audience, we are never quite as certain of what's happening as John seems to be, right? Mm-hmm. Like John has like solved it all and we're all still like, but how did he get those lungs back in his body? Like what is happening here? Yeah, because we're not getting John's voiceover. Actually, mm-hmm. put a pin in that. I want to come back and talk about it. But we can only interpret what we're seeing because we don't have the adage of hearing John's thoughts. So you're right. We're kind of like, I think I figured it out. It's not like it's super difficult to follow. No. But we don't get that confirmation. And because we're only catching glimpses of this creature, we know that there's something fantastical, but we uh-huh. don't have the full picture. And then he stands up and yeah. he kind of looks <laughs> like a low-budget alien. Yes, indeed. And I just feel like if I were in the editing room with O'Brien, you know, I wasn't invited, but if I was, (laughs) I would say like everything that's great about this film is the restraint that you show. Everything is great that's great about this film is in what our imaginations do to try to put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. And then you you give me this big stuffed alien at the end. (laughs) It's just like, why? I don't want this. I didn't ask for it. I don't want it. And I feel like we should clarify, it's not that it's a matter of budget, like, oh, this looks janky and bad. I don't know that there was a version of this that would have worked for me, given what we had before. I didn't need this, and I didn't want it. I don't think it would have been effective in any regard. So, Brenna, maybe there's one final piece that we can talk about before we go into our YA bingo. Okay, also, I have one thing to complain about, too. So maybe there's two more things. (laughs) Okay, fine. Me (laughs) first. I do want to talk about this voiceover narration because I feel like uh, I will go on the record and say this may be one of the few times people ever hear me say this. I was going to say, you hate voiceover narration. I hate voiceover narration. I really missed it. Yeah. And maybe that's just because I wasn't connecting to Max Records' performance in the same way as you were. But there were a number of times where I thought, you know what? I don't need it throughout the entire thing, but even just occasionally, just a little touch of voiceover would have helped to augment this. There are a couple of places where I wanted it. I wanted it actually at the very end of the film. Mm. I wanted some closure in the form of narration. One of the things I really like about the book is the moment where John kind of reflects on how the more you know about people, even if it's not like a an empathy that he's feeling mm-hmm. he can connect to people if he knows more about them right it's what he tells yeah. us and then he turns to his mom and he says i want to hear about your life like i want to hear your life story and mm-hmm. it's it's beautiful yes because it's him trying to love in the way that he's capable of right yeah. and it's yeah. it's really nice and it suggests a certain amount of growth mm-hmm. suggests a certain arc for him it gives us a sense that he's going to have a positive ending yeah we don't get anything like that in the no. film. They have this sort of like, <laughs> they're embalming the therapist at the end and they're having like this kind of chat. Yeah. But... And we end on a note of comedy, which mm-hmm. it happens in the book as well. But I don't know. It didn't give me the same note of closure and mm-hmm. satisfaction. It gave me just the closure. And I think with the voiceover, we would have had more of satisfaction. That's my suspicion. Because mm-hmm. we don't really, in the film, we don't really know why he suddenly wanting to like have small chat with his mom right yeah like i guess things are just back to the way that they were but are they yeah because the book does move it forward within reason like he's not a completely different person he's obviously still a sociopath but he's now making effort whereas in the film it's just okay i cracked a joke yeah totally totally Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, what is your thing then? It's very petty. Okay. (laughs) I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you would have a petty (laughs) complaint that you would leave until the end of an episode, Brenna. How dare you? (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) I really don't like that John's mom and Neblin go on a date in the film. Oh my... Okay, so... Here's the only reason that I think it happens. This is me reading between the lines. Those actors are married in real life. Oh. I don't think it excuses it for the purposes of the film because she even tries to rationalize it like, we have meetings to talk about your therapy. And I'm like, yes, that's in the book. That totally makes sense, particularly given the nature of the subject. Not usually candlelit meetings. Not candlelit dinner (laughs) with wine. Come on now. No, I didn't like it. Or we needed to spend a lot more time. Yes. It is one scene, and then she just says, oh, were you following me? And then we're done. We don't talk about it again. Yeah, we don't unpack any of that, which is kind of problematic for a bunch of reasons. Um, yes. And yeah, no, I was really, I was very upset by it. I was just like, I don't want <laughs> this. I think part of it is because the film doesn't spend any time on John's mother. Mm-hmm. The, not that the book does in particular. Not really, no. But... If I was going to get more time spent on John's mother, I didn't want it in the form of her dating Neblin. Like, that doesn't answer my John's no. mom-related questions. <laughs> I actually wanted more from the mother and the sister. Yeah, their relationship. I just think it's a fascinating family dynamic, particularly when you put in that they work and live in a mortuary. Like, there's there's something inherently compelling about that. Yeah. And the way that the sister left and then came back in the book and... In the film, it's just made very clear that there is a lot of tension, but we don't discuss it. And again, I don't know if they were thinking, hey, this could be the start of a franchise because we've got a lot of books we could adapt. But given the nature of the film's small production, I don't know that you would have banked on that. No, I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah. So I I appreciate the petty complaint because I did feel (laughs) the exact same way. Like when that scene plays... I looked at myself because there was nobody here with me, but I just went, wait, what? Why are yeah. we, what? No. <laughs> I go, I said to Devin, well, that wasn't in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the problems with adaptations, right? <laughs> uh, so this wasn't in the book and I don't like it. <laughs> okay. Let's play some Wyatt Bingo. Hey, give me a second to get the card up. Brenna. <laughs> I did well for a couple of weeks. <laughs> you remembered for one week, lady. <laughs> bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, what have you got? Well, I'll tell you. I wish we still had illusion on the board, because we got all this William Blake poetry floating around. Nowhere to put it. I mean, we have coincidental classes. It's kind of the same thing. His therapy is a sort of life lesson. Well, yeah, but the Blake poetry comes from Mr. Crawley. Yeah. Okay, no. fine, fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's see here. Uh, we've got Magic Supernatural. Mm-hmm. We've got CGI. Yeah, touch <laughs> CGI. CGI. Mm-hmm. Um, we have stunt casting. I mean, Christopher Lloyd is stunt casting. Yeah, especially for a film that's this size, it was probably a big get to get him. Well, it's definitely that Canadian movie move, right? Which is a bunch of people you've never heard of and one American. (laughs) (laughs) Dead body, dead family. Yeah, that was the only other one that I've got. Oh, wow. 
I think the only other one might be borrowed time just because there's a time limit to when Crawley will have to act. Yeah, he's gonna die, especially in the end, right? Like that last scene, that last kill is very much a borrowed time kind of kill. Yeah, although even that feels like a, a touch of a stretch. Yeah. I mean, there's also, well, there's kind of some Chosen One vibes, like evil Chosen One in the, you know, the, the sociopath <laughs> hunting the serial killer. But no, I acknowledge that is also a stretch. Yeah. This is not a very tropey, tropity trope trope. Well, it was for horror tropes, but not for YA tropes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. In some ways, I think that's part of the reason why we ended up enjoying it as much as we did, because... Yeah. This was a bit of a new adventure for us, right? Yeah. Oh, 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 holiday. <laughs> we have a holiday set piece because we have both a Thanksgiving fight and a Christmas fight. I'm confused, Brenna. There's no prom. What are you talking about? <laughs> prom is not a holiday. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Multiple holidays. Yes. Okay. Uh, but no, still not no a line. No. Nowhere near. <laughs> no. I really enjoyed this one, Joe. I always approach October with a bit of trepidation, but this one was really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad that we are starting a spooky month off with something like this. I think it's a good uh, table setting, palette cleanser, whatever your metaphor you want to use. Go for it. <laughs> We've got lots of spookiness. And, Joe, we mm -hmm. have more shapeshifters next week. We do indeed, because the time has come for book club, Brenna. I'm so excited. So we are reading book two in the Trickster cycle. So this was the series that was being adapted into a TV series. We did mm -hmm. season one and um, Son of a Trickster last year. Unfortunately, yes. you can go back and listen to the episode. That is not going to be continuing. Mm -mm. Thanks, Michelle Latimer. I guess we can't have anything good. <laughs> but we do get to read Trickster Drift. And I am, Joe, I'm about halfway through it, and it's so good. It's so yeah. much fun. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It feels like it's completely different in a lot of ways. Like, we're into a whole new setting, very different kind of adventure. And yet this world is so easy to get back into. Folks, if you yes. have not read the first book, I really implore you, like, try to hop on this bandwagon as quick as possible, because these books are well worth your time. Oh, they really are. They're really well written. They're super creepy. They're funny. Mm -hmm. They've got everything you could possibly want. And as I said, more shapeshifters. Who doesn't love a shapeshifter? <laughs> yeah. Uh, just in case folks didn't listen to our first episode, though, I am going to give like a big old warning for abuse, especially in that first book. Lots and lots and lots of abuse. Yeah, there is a lot of abuse. There's a lot of family violence. There's a lot mm -hmm. of drugs and drug abuse. So if that stuff's not your bag, then just listen to the episode. But yeah. If you think you might be into it, you should pick up these books. You'll enjoy them. By Eden mm -hmm. Robinson. I didn't say that part. So. Indeed. Yeah. October's book club. Next week, Trickster Drift, Eden Robinson. You won't regret mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And then we're going to drop a bonus episode as well. So folks, if you are a Disney Plus subscriber, if you are a fan of the Muppets, we're going to give you a little bonus <gasps> with the Muppets Haunted Mansion, which is their new special this year. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy. It this looks is just for you and so because you cute. berated me on social media. <laughs> I didn't berate you. I just gently suggested that there is good crossover between Muppet fans and 
our show. So we mm-hmm. should definitely do it. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm very excited for this. This is the first brand new Muppet property in a while. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it looks really good. It looks creepy and fun. Well, I'm excited because I will appreciate the spooky, scary stuff, and you will have to educate me on most of the Muppet stuff, because it's not my forte, but uh, of course it is yours, so. Come on, folks, tune in for some Muppet lore, some Muppet (laughs) education for Joe. It's going to be a good time. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. All right, folks. So uh, that's where we're headed. If you want to get in touch with us, if you've got thoughts to share about Book Club, you can always find us at HKHSPod on the Twitters or hashtag HKHSPod. If you've got something longer, you can send it to HKHSPod at gmail.com. Joe, Mm -hmm. if they want to share Muppet facts with you, where do they find you? (laughs) You can talk to me about I am not a serial killer at (laughs) B stole my remote. And that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, and that's Gray with an A. And Joe, I feel like I should have done this at the beginning of the episode, but I'm mm-hmm. sorry for my mucusy voice. <laughs> I've been homesick <laughs> this week. I don't have the plague. I, I just have a, a cold. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that you have sounded fine for the vast majority of the time, whereas I have just been a stumbly mess. So you know what? <laughs> Our dynamic preserved continues on as usual. And yet when you make a clip show, it's all my flubs. Uh, this is true. Because I'm the one who makes it. (laughs) Until next time, folks, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. 